0: Be seated, and as you are seated, if you would please take your Bibles and open them to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. It is good to be back with you. I appreciate Pastor Steve Dyton, a friend of mine, uh, for many, many years coming and speaking to you all last week. Uh, he is the interim pastor at Hoffmantown Baptist Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and when he told me that, I said, well, I will cut you a deal. I will let you stay at home one week So that you don't have to fly out there, if I can take your place in Albuquerque and eat lots of green chili. And so uh, that's what we did, and I did eat indeed a lot of green chili. So I had a good time, but it is great to be back here with you. We are beginning a new church year, and this new church year is one upon which we will spend a lot of time focusing, focusing on our purpose as a church focusing on what we need to be doing specifically as a church. And all of that is going to require that we as individuals and as a church be faithful. And so our first message series will be from 2 Timothy, and we are going to focus on faithfulness. And I hope you have found 2 Timothy in your copy of God's Word. If you would please stand as we honor its reading this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, which says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. I think most of us know that these books that uh, fill out the bulk of the New Testament were originally letters. For the most part, those were letters that were written to churches. And really it's probably more accurate to say letters written to regions where churches were and the books themselves are named after the region to which they were sent. However, there are a handful of letters that are personal in nature and 2 Timothy is one of those. And in fact, in many respects, it may be the most personal of all of the New Testament letters that have become New Testament books. The reason for that is because of the unique relationship Paul and Timothy had with one another. Timothy had been discipled, had been cultivated in his faith by Paul. Paul had... Had prepped Timothy, had acknowledged that Timothy was experiencing a call to ministry, and on behalf of the church, authorized Timothy for that ministry, and Timothy kind of became his his, his special helper, and he invested a lot of time and a lot of love in Timothy. And when we get to 2 Timothy, we are at the very end of Paul's life. In fact, it is not inconceivable that Uh, Paul wrote this letter to uh, Timothy just days before his execution at the hands of the Emperor Nero in Rome. It's the last thing we have record of, and it's all about helping Timothy, who was experiencing a bad case of nerves as he led a difficult church in Ephesus, be encouraged to persevere, not just in his faith, but in his ministry so that the gospel itself could flourish. And so he begins with um, a pretty typically Pauline way of beginning things. It's essentially, um, you know, hi, it's Paul. All right? But, but he, he adds some things to that. If you'll go back and look at verse 1, he says, I'm Paul. And then he identifies himself. I want, I want to pay close attention to how he identifies himself. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise that is in of, life, of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. The, the word apostle is a term that designates a special group of people that had been set aside by God to establish the church. It was an office that we believe as Baptists only existed in the early days of the church. That's the reason that you do not find people who are called apostles in the modern church today, at least in Baptist circles, because we believe that that office died with the first generation of Christians. So Paul is saying that I have been given a special duty by Jesus to establish the the New Testament church. But the phrase that I really want to hone in on is the phrase that kind of undergirds that or lies as the foundation of that apostleship by Paul. He says it is by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Sometimes people like to underline things in their Bible that in Christ might be uh, something that you would want to underline. Frequently, you will hear the New the 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 life we have with Jesus described by two different phrases in the New Testament. One is Christ in you, or Jesus, as he says in John 15, you know, I abide in you. And then the other one is actually being in Christ. So Christ in us, us in Christ. Christ in us typically is used to describe the effect of being a Jesus follower. So because we have surrendered our lives to follow Jesus, the life of Jesus is in us, and our lives are meant to be to be lived out as Christ would live them. That's what in Christ typically, or Christ in us typically refers to. But when you see the phrase in Christ, it has to do with status. In other words, because I've surrendered myself to Jesus, my life has been placed in Christ so that God, when he views my life, only sees Christ. So when Paul is talking about being in Christ here He is talking about the nature of his salvation. And he is saying that the nature of my salvation is such that at the moment I surrendered myself to follow Jesus as Savior, my life became completely enveloped, completely interwoven with the life of Christ himself. And so he's describing when he talks about being in Christ, an intimacy of relationship and a depth of connection that is part and parcel with what it means to be saved. And here is what I want you to get. He is not describing here the luxury version of the Christian life. I think sometimes we look at at words like that and we think about the concept and and what it means and we think, well, man, I'd sure sure like to have that, but that sounds expensive. I'll take the budget model of Christianity, please. I'll take the economy version. You know the version I'm talking about, right? The version that says, well, all you need is heaven when you die. And to say, you know, grace before you eat your meal. That's, that's the salvation I want. But Paul is not talking about an, a luxury, deluxe version of the faith that he himself is experiencing. When he talks about being in Christ, and when he talks about all that goes with that, about a depth of connection and being completely interwoven in the life of Christ. He is speaking of the normal Christian life. This is what it means to be saved. There is no, there is no economy version of that. To be saved is to have your life completely swallowed up by the life of Christ and have a depth of connection and a depth of intimacy with Jesus that you would not be able to have with just uh, church stuff or religious stuff. This is what it means to be saved. And then note that his apostleship is according to that. So the logic goes like this, because I, I am in Christ Because I have this depth of of connection, this deep and intimate relationship with Christ, flowing from that is my assignment as being an apostle. And remember, that is his duty given to him by God to establish the New Testament church. And, And here's where we get lost in all of this. We tend to think of our salvation in purely individualistic terms in the Western church now. In other words, why do you need to be saved? Well, you need to be saved because God has a wonderful plan for your life. You need to be saved so your relationship matrices can all be you know, whole and flourishing. You need to be saved so you can have a better family life. You need to be saved so you can have a better financial life. You need to be saved for all of these things that are important to you. But listen to me. Paul is saying that when I got saved, the purpose for it, according to the will of God, was to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to make his name known among the nations in this particular way. And this, too, is the normal Christian life. I've got news for all of us. We weren't saved to be self-actualized. We were saved to make Christ name known to the world that needs to hear it you say prove it okay the great commission of Jesus with followers surrounding him as he left was pure and simple go and make disciples you say okay prove it to me again I will hang hang on in in second uh, Timothy go to a few books over to the New Testament book of first Peter Peter, the apostle of Jesus, one of the twelve, was, was waxing eloquent about the nature of salvation. And he comes to a verse that many of you have probably heard before. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, he says, But you, you who are saved, this is your nature, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation... A people for his own possess- possession. Why? Why are you this? Why are you saved? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It cannot get any more plain than that. The function of your salvation at its most basic practical level is for you and for me to share the story of the one who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the normal Christian life. And then in verse 2, he expresses this deep uh, affection and love for Timothy. And then in verse 3, he does again what what Paul is prone to do at the beginnings of letters. He offers a written prayer of thanksgiving. And so I want you to look at verse 3, how this prayer of thanksgiving goes down. He says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. He has created three verses here, one sentence in his language, but three verses in our language, and maybe you caught it, that is, is built around a common theme. And here's the common theme. The common theme of a faith handed down. That's the theme of verses 3 through 5, the common theme of a faith handed down. Again, if you're comfortable in underlining in your copies of God's Word, I would encourage you to underline the phrase in verse 3, as did my ancestors. And then again, if you're comfortable in doing so, a longer phrase in verse 5, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Those two phrases are anchor pieces For the common theme of those three verses, the common theme being of a faith that's handed down. Paul says, I am thankful for those in the Jewish faith who preceded me. That may sound odd to some of us as we stop and think about it because Paul's a Christian. He is the prototypical Christian. So why is it that Paul is giving thanks for a religion and and the efforts of people in a religion that he's rejected? Here's the mistake. Paul did not view himself as having as having abandoned the Jewish faith. He viewed his relationship with Christ as the completion of this Jewish faith, he said. Before I understood all of this, I labored in ignorance. But when I met Jesus, I understand that Jesus was the final manifestation, the final prophet of the God of Abraham. So I am thankful. I would have never come to know Christ as I know Him had it not been for people who invested in me and who labored in the Old Testament scriptures so that I knew them, so that when the time came for me to find Jesus as my Savior, on the basis of those scriptures. I could see Jesus as the Messiah sent from God. He's thankful for that investment, for that faith handed down. And then he says to Timothy, you need to be thankful too. I mean, you just didn't show up a Christian. You're you're the beneficiary of your grandmother's investment in you and and your mother's investment in you. It's only two times in all of Scripture that these women's names are mentioned. But it goes along with how we're introduced to Timothy in Acts chapter 16, where we're told that he was the the son of a a believing mother and an unbelieving pagan Greek father. He's saying, you, you, sir, have a faith that has been handed down to you, so let's let's just all get in here and have a big hallelujah moment because somebody helped us find Jesus. And so, now we have an understanding of what's going on in these first five verses, verses that we might have otherwise blown over so we could get to the good stuff. Paul is giving thanks for the faith that he and Timothy share, a faith that had given them a mission and a purpose that was knowing Christ and making Him known to the nations. And they're both acknowledging that they wouldn't be here without the investment of others. My junior year of college, I had to take natural science. Um, I don't remember much about that class that I took 31 years ago. Strangely, I remember the name of the girl that sat here, the girl that sat there, and the girl that sat there. (laughs) But beyond that, I don't remember much. I do, however, remember for some weird reason... A quote by Sir Isaac Newton that our teacher read to us. I, I don't know why I latched onto this, perhaps because God knew I needed an illustration 31 years later in a sermon. But a scientist in Newton's time had written him commending him on all of the amazing discoveries that, that he had uncovered about the laws of nature and how, how the world worked. And Newton wrote back to him, thanking him for uh, those, those accolades. But then he said this. I've never forgotten it. Newton wrote, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Think about that. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants same is true in the Christian faith. There are giants before us. Upon whose shoulders we, this morning, who claim the name of Jesus, are standing? Whose shoulders are you standing on? I'm standing on the shoulders of a man whose name I've forgotten. He was an evangelist that was doing uh, a revival... at our church, a series of meetings in the evening that actually went so well that it extended a couple of weeks past the four days it was supposed to happen. I'm standing on his shoulders because even though I'd heard the name of Jesus and had the gospel presented to me numerous times in my home and by Sunday school teachers and uh, church leadership that invested in me, the night where God's purposes for me intersected the message and therefore I surrendered my life to Jesus was when that man preached a salvation message on March the 26th, 1978. I'm standing on that man's shoulders. Whose shoulders are you standing on? Who shared faith with Jesus with you the moment that you gave your life to Christ? And when was the last time you thanked God for that? Why don't we do that right now? Why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes? Think of that person who shared the gospel with you the time you responded. And offer thanks to Jesus for that person. Father, I thank you for that man and his message on that night long ago. A message and a moment that's not just impacting my life today but will be impacting my life a trillion years from now. Thank you for letting me stand on his shoulders. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's a good exercise. Occasionally we need to do that. Essentially what Paul's going to do for the next several verses and really the entire book is is lead Timothy through that kind of thing. But you all do know that I'm a preacher, right? Which means that I come swooping in to warm, fuzzy moments with a challenge that makes us all go, uh. Right? And here's Two more questions we need to think about. Not just whose shoulders are we standing on, but these two questions. Who's standing on your shoulders? Who today is standing on your shoulders? Who is in the kingdom because you are the one used by God to share faith with them and bring them into the kingdom of God? 48% of our world live in regions that demographers identify as having sub-replacement fertility rates. Sub-replacement fertility rates. What that means is, is that every generation in these particular areas has fewer people in them than the previous generation. They are not replacing the mortality rate. Any guesses as to where these nations are? They're in the wealthy West. And here's the hypocrisy at work behind all of that. I am so thankful that my parents gave me life. But to bring kids into the world would just keep me from having my best life and having fun. So I'm not going to have any, and if I have some, I'm not going to have very many. Let me say what I've said before to the dread of everybody in uh, working in the little kids' ministry you keep having babies or adopting them until Jesus says no. That's just part of it. But here's why I bring that up. The Western church, spiritually, has a sub-replacement fertility rate. So, for instance, we can just have the moment we just had. I am so thankful for that person that shared faith with me. Who have you shared faith with? Nobody. There's no one I know who could point back to my interaction with, that, with them and say, as a result of that final interaction with them, I have found faith in Christ Jesus. We are so busy being hashtag blessed by programming and by music and by deep Bible study that, frankly, we just can't get around being bothered to pay attention to our neighbors next door or our coworkers or classmates and stepping out and being marginally uncomfortable in order that they may find the life that we ourselves have. That's why at Blue Valley we are doing everything possible to remind people that sharing faith is the responsibility of every Jesus follower. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago when I shared with you the proposed mission, vision, and value statement from the elders that we are considering and that we hopefully will adopt as a church together on November the 24th, I included in it the evangelism philosophy that the elders have studied Scripture and identified as not being unique to Blue Valley, but this is just what evangelism, this is what outreach means. I'll read it to you in case you haven't memorized the sermon from two weeks ago. Here's what it says, Jesus expects all members and all ages at Blue Valley Baptist Church to commit to using their gifts, talents, education, vocations, and life experiences to share the gospel of Christ through their personal stories of following Jesus in their neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, and around the world. So, who have you lifted up? Who are you right now lifting up in the hopes that someday they could stand on your shoulders. You say, my family. You need to be doing that with your family. But let's, let's branch out from that. Neighbors, do you know their names? Do you know their, their background spiritually? Coworkers, do you know their background spiritually? Do you have an idea where they stand with Jesus? Let's, let's get about doing that because far too many of us have no one standing on our shoulders. Then let me ask this question. What church is standing on Blue Valley's shoulders? What church is standing on Blue Valley's shoulders? This month we experience our our 41st anniversary as a church. Blue Valley Baptist Church has been a church for 41 years this month. In fact, it may be next week. 41 years next week is how long we've been in existence as a church. And we, we were never really a mission per se. What we were was a resourced group of volunteers and people who had a passion for this area out of Emanuel Baptist Church north of here. And we, as a result of their investment in us, were able to constitute and become a church. In fact, I got the opportunity on behalf of our church to go back this past spring and tell Emanuel thank you. They had an anniversary celebration and they had several pastors um, from the area whose, whose churches were, were started by Emanuel. Two that you will recognize is Blue Valley, obviously, and Lenexa Baptist Church. Blue Valley and Lenexa Baptist Church are standing on the shoulders of Emanuel Baptist Church. To my knowledge, Blue Valley doesn't even have one. 41 years. Not not One. Now, if I'm wrong, I I do want you to correct me because we need to celebrate that and connect with that congregation again. But to my knowledge, not one. The closest we've come is to revitalizing what was the Fellowship Baptist Church um, and sending lots of people over to constitute what was Fellowship Baptist Church as the Ridgeview campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church. It used to be that Baptist churches were all about planting other churches. I mean, that's, that's how we understood evangelism. Uh, let me give you a little history lesson, and everybody goes, ooh, yay. Um, have you ever noticed, you may not have, but maybe you have, have you ever noticed that there aren't many Southern Baptist churches in Kansas? And, and let me give you the data. There, in Kansas proper, about 350 Southern Baptist churches. Now, in Oklahoma, just to our south, there are about 2,000. And people say, well, why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. It all goes back to the days when uh, Northern Baptists, now known as American Baptists and Southern Baptists, were doing their very best to plant churches everywhere they could. And they started meeting up out here in the plains, and they started stepping all over one another. And so what was decided and there's, it's called the Baptist Comity Agreement, not comedy agreement. There's a lot of comedy with Baptists, but it's called the Baptist <laughs> Comity Agreement. They agreed, not just here but in some other regions, that they would divvy up because the gospel needed to advance. So Northern Baptists got Kansas. Southern Baptists got Oklahoma. That's why there aren't many Southern Baptist churches in Kansas. In fact, we didn't really start planting churches up here until the 40s. Till the, till the 1940s. My point in sharing that story is that, is that the purpose of the Northern Baptist, now American Baptist, and the Southern Baptist was not to build big giant churches where everybody came. The purpose was to plant a church in that town and plant a church in that town and plant a church in that town so that those churches could plant churches in outlying towns and so on and so on, and the gospel could go forward. Baptists used to get this, but now what happens is that we go looking for a church whose programming is comfortable, who can help us be self-actualized and we just are there so that we ourselves can be blessed and the result is there are no churches after 41 years of this kind of talent, this kind of gifting at Blue Valley Baptist Church this much invested after forty one years there's not a single church standing on our shoulders and that's why we are trying to fix that with the vision that we are proposing that we adopt, that will carry us through our golden anniversary in twenty-twenty-eight. A vision that sees us becoming a multiplying church that is actively establishing local campuses and planning autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally in nine more years. That defines our church so that in nine years we're stooped over because we have so many standing on our shoulders. So let's make two commitments as we close. First. Personally, let's make a commitment to stop being selfish with our faith and become committed to sharing our faith with those that God has put within our reach. Second, join me in praying for our church to get fully on board with doing whatever it takes to focus on planting campuses and autonomous churches and to adopt the proposed vision before us on November 24th. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.